You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Brayman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon to talk about ID Week. ID Week is the joint annual meeting of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, or IDSA, Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, SHEA, the HIV Medicine Association, HIVMA, the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, PIDS, and the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, SIDP. This year, it took place in October. So welcome again, John. Yeah, thanks, Marianne. A lot of different groups that are uh, involved, uh, or, you know, attend these meetings, you know, this is, but this is the uh, the big ID meeting for the year. So I'm glad to be here to talk about it today. So John, can you talk, tell us about ID Week, um, which happened in October of 2022? Yeah, so just a couple of things. Um, this is one of the meetings that I generally don't go to. So I actually did not go to this meeting this year, but um, it was actually in person uh, in Washington, D.C. And but there were some interesting data sets presented that I think uh, um, that our HIV world would want to know about. So I thought I would view a few of them. Um, so the first thing was a was a prep awareness and misconception study that was done in women. So um, we we've, we've talked about this, uh, you know, but the obviously prep is available for for women as well, and I think it's underutilized. And this survey really kind of showed this. But um, this was uh, conducted by researchers from uh, from UNC, uh, University of North Carolina. Uh, that reflected you know, national population. So here's what they did. Um, they surveyed um, over 900 women, uh, the median of 28 years old. Uh, it was a 90-question survey about PrEP, um, sexual behavior. And this was done prior to the long-acting injectable PrEP was available. So for those of you, Mayor, I'm sure many of you know this, but PrEP is now there's an injectable uh, cabotegavir. This was prior to that. So it was November and December of 2021. So demographics as follows, 35% were black, 20% white, about 30% Hispanic. And when they asked about PrEP use, and again, this is just in women, um, 71% of the women had heard of PrEP, um, but only about 38% had actually talked to the provider about, provider about it. When you took the next step and asked, you know, what's, at one point had anybody used it, it was only 20%, but only 9% were on current PrEP. So these are people who had talked to the provider, used it at some point, um, you know, uh, it, but only 9% were on, currently on PrEP. And then they also did uh, some um, some questions about sexual history. And among those, excuse me, um, who used condoms for anal or vaginal intercourse, only 16% 
had said um, that they had used them consistently. So again, clearly people at risk for um, for not only for STIs, but more importantly for, for HIV here. So more than half the participants had never been tested for HIV, which is scary, and, and about one in five report exchanging sex for drugs for or, or money at least once. So John, what exactly does this all mean? Yeah, so I think I think it's a great survey, and I think you know large population, right? So I think gives gives us kind of a window into what's happening for women. Um, but I think we do need to get more uh, more women on prep clearly. And remember too that um, just as an FYI, the TAF FTC, which is the the drug that's um, that's the newer version of tenofovir, is not indicated for women. So just people people know that. And I want to be clear on that too. Sometimes people ask, well, is it okay for women who have HIV? And it is. It's for for but for prevention. The, the the new TAF FTC does not have the, have the data yet um, enough at least to make sure that the FDA would approve it. So TDF FTC, which is the older version of tenofovir and CAB, are the only options for women for HIV prevention. But you know all of these would obviously be able to be used for women who have HIV uh, with you know in combination with other other drugs. So here, there's only about 10% of women in the CDC data around PrEP that are eligible for it. So more work needs to be done. Interesting, the number for people who were on PrEP was 9% in that UNC study. So the CDC data is right around the same number, about 10% of people. So I also want to just highlight too that black women are 14 times more likely to have HIV infection than white women. That's directly from CDC. So again, it really kind of highlights our, our further uh, focus on uh, our, our efforts on, on black and also Latino communities as well. But women in general, you know, need to be uh, need to be on prep if if they're at risk. And clearly, in that UNC study, it does it does kind of suggest that that's an issue. Um, next, Marianne, I thought we'd briefly mention the Opera Corps. This is really quick, but it's a large database of, of about 150,000 people. And there was a couple of different studies where, where they where they kind of queried the database for different information. But one was done with um, using cabropivirine injection and to look and see what those patients look like in this Opera Cohort. 96 clinics, 22 states, um, and about 89% of patients still remain on cabropivirine uh, with nearly 100% undetectable if they were suppressed at baseline. This kind of helps us what's happening on um, uh, in real life outside of studies. So it appears like cabopirivirine is working pretty well for people, at least in some of these database studies. Also looked at was the real-time or the real-world use of fostemsevir. So remember, fostemsevir is, is one of our drugs that we use for treatment experience patients. So these were um, uh, 86 uh, persons living with HIV, um, uh, who had started started fostemsevir, median follow-up was about, about 10 or 11 months. Uh, 55 of the individuals uh, had an unsuppressed viral load at baseline. And among those who were virologically suppressed, started taking fostemsevir with other drugs. Um, 32% were still taking the drugs at six months. Um, and nearly um, nearly half had achieved viral suppression at some point during the follow period. So again, difficult to treat population, but in real life data, even if we got half of those patients suppressed, we're really doing pretty well. Um, fewer than 5% experience of a blip. Um, but if you look at those who had suppressed viral loads at baseline, the vast majority of those stayed, stayed suppressed at six months, 12 months, and 71% um, maintains uh, suppression throughout the study period. So again, if they're undetectable, and they're put on fostemsevir, they stay there. But if they're treatment experience and they start fostemsevir, it's kind of a marker of really more difficult to treat populations. But again, these are two examples from this opera cohort that kind of gives us real world data on, on some of the drugs um, 
that are that are being used in, in our populations that 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 are that are hopeful hopefully for people at least with people limited options with the stem severe some of this data is actually very good for for our patients to kind of get some of the real life information too John what about new data on drugs and vaccines can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so this one is an important one um this is the ACTG 5379b hive study so many of you may know um there's different Hep B vaccines that are out there, but one of them has an an adjuvant that's added to enhance responses. So at ID Week, um, they looked at this Hep B CPG vaccine um, in persons with HIV without prior hepatitis B vaccines, and um, uh, these small numbers are right. But all patients receive three doses: one at entry, another one at four weeks, and another one at week 24. So once, four, and 24. This is the Heplasav. So if you're using this, this is the Heplasav B vaccine. And when they looked at protection, amazing numbers, 100% of people, everybody, uh, all the patients in the study um, at week 28 had zero protection. And, and even if you look at the second dose at, four, at week four, after that fourth, after that week four dose, a, a large percentage of people were protected um, you know, earlier on too. So very good numbers in, in persons with HIV. So this is the, again, the Heplosab B presentation of the vaccine. So um, this is nice to see some data in co-infected patients done by the ACTG. Uh, also, data from the Capella study was presented. This was the lenacapavir um, data. I won't spend a lot of time in this. I think we're we're aware of this drug, uh, but this is the 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 um, uh, these were patients who were treatment experienced. And basically, if you look at week fifty two results, if you look at the seventy two participants, uh, about about eighty percent, so seventy eight percent had gotten their viral load to under 50, which is really remarkable. And 82% had, had a viral load less than 200 co- co- copies. And then CD4 increase was about 84 cells. So I just want to make sure people are aware that this is a drug that's likely going to be approved um, in, in late in, in late uh, 2022 uh, we'll to see what pans out. But again, um, the proof of date from the FDA is going to be um, the end of December. Um, 10 participants did have emergent lenacapavir resistance. Only one uh, developed that resistance between week 40, 26 and 52. Four other participants were subsequently able to re-achieve um, viral suppression, which is, which is uh, really helpful. I just want people to know as well that there is a, a pair of studies called the Purpose 1 and Purpose 2 studies, which is also looking at this lenacapavir. Again, this is a long-acting six-month injection. It's also a tablet formulation as well. But in persons um, living without HIV, those people who are treatment naive um, uh, or uh, those people who are, sorry, not, not living with HIV, or people who, um, um, who are HIV uninfected are going to be, there's a, some data looking at lenacapavir in the Purpose 1, Purpose 2 study, exploring this drug's potential for, for PrEP. So we'll have to see what actually pans out, pans out there, but really some exciting data from, from lenacapavir. What can you tell us about some of the older studies that were discussed? Yeah, so this is an important one too. There's two big ones I want to just cover here too. This the START study. This was, um, if you remember, these were the patients who had T cells over 500, um, and they basically tried to see if they could delay therapy in some patients. Long story short, not a complete surprise, but the data is still being analyzed. And the study really essentially led many guideline pan- panels to really recommend treating everybody, um, regardless of CD4 count. But um, the the delays in ART that are that are in some of the studies, still those analysis really can show you the same thing that there's this excess risk of AIDS and serious non-AIDS conditions that are ongoing despite the fact that um, uh, uh, that 
despite the fact that these patients are all on ART, even when you look back over time, um, that those patients that had delayed therapy, even further out, they have more events than those people that were started on therapy right as well, right as right away. For me, this means a lot. For me, Mariana, this means a lot for people who start and stop their treatment for one. And it also means a lot for those people who um, get diagnosed and may not get the therapy right away because oftentimes I think because providers may think that they won't take it or for whatever reason, um, certainly there's social issues that have to have to play, come into play there too, but we need to make sure that everybody's on therapy. And I think this is also important for people who rapidly restart therapy in the hospital setting. So if you're in the hospital setting and you happen to be somebody who um, is in the hospital and you haven't been on therapy and you get sick, you come back in rapidly restarting those patients is, is important. Um, five-year data from the from the from the Gilead 1489 and 1490 study really supporting the role of integration inhibitors was very, very important. The big story here, a big piece in my mind is that no, no resistance. And I think that's a, uh, an important piece for us to, to be aware of. Um, discontinuations are very similar. The weight gain, I think, is is, is the big concern with uh with, with Bictegavir and also with Dietegavir as well. And the Bictegavir arm. That was presented here out to five years. The weight gain is about six to seven kilograms. And again, most of that happening early on um, in the study. And that's pretty much from, from those studies. This has been quite a lot of information. Any final takeaways as we wrap up? Yeah, so this is one that I don't deal a lot with, but um, this is a histoplasmosis, which it sent, you know, can occur obviously in HIV patients. But um, they looked at liposomal amphotericin B. Um this is a, a very interesting study. They did 118 patients, um, three different arms. So this is done in Brazil. There was a single dose of 10 mg per kilogram of AMFOB uh, liposomal, um, 10 mg per kilogram on day one and five mg per kilogram on day three, and then three mg per kilogram daily for two weeks with itraconazole for, um, for a day for one year. So the most important thing is that the there was an 89% survival in the single arm single dose arm. So those patients that got 10 mg per kilogram um, uh, liposomal amphotericin B. So again, very interesting data. There's also some data on single doses for cryptococcal meningitis as well. And so for us, we're dealing with some of the opportunistic infections in the hospital uh, or, or some of our more sick patients that, that might be that might be presenting. Um, I think it's an important study. Um, but I think also another important one was was COVID-19 outcomes were also reviewed at this at this meeting. And this is for, for persons with HIV, a retrospective cohort, large numbers. Uh, persons with HIV tested positive um, for COVID-19. This is about 6,000 patients out of a total of 43,000 patients. But just remember, factors associated with testing positive for, for COVID-19, younger age, uh, people living in the U.S. and the South and being uninsured. I think the most important piece is this. this if you look at um, uh, higher risk in, in Hispanic whites and African-Americans, again, kind of getting at those, those health disparities that we talk about and even um, some of the differences in, in who's who's actually getting diagnosed and the numbers are higher, certainly um, in, in African-Americans and, and in Hispanic whites. But I think the most important thing, if you look at is, uh, the variables that are associated with death, it was clearly low CD4 cell count and detectable viral load. So again, another key piece on getting people on therapy, getting them undetectable, the patients who have higher viral loads, lower T-cells, are the ones that are probably likely going to be have a higher mortality rate in some of these retrospective um, studies looking back at people with HIV. So we're seeing more of this data come out, really, that there is this risk in, in these patients who have um, 
not on therapy, you know, with, with detectable viral loads and, and low CD4 counts. So those are some of the big highlights. The ID week, there's some great places to go for slides, and you can certainly look at that online. Um, a lot of good updates are available out there now, um, now that this uh, this has been um, a couple months ago. But, you know, very, very good information, I think, here from, from the ID week. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about ID Week. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about NICA AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nicaaetc.org. That's www.necaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.